from verse 13 to the end until chapter 2 to verse 3. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but from the, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world and was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you are purified by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again in an enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Thanks, Kemi, and uh, good morning again. Um, as Steve mentioned earlier, we are up to week two in a series on the book of First Peter. It'll be helpful before we dive in uh, just for you to have your Bibles open as we go through the passage this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which we've just read is, is living and enduring uh, and will last forever. Lord, hundreds and thousands of years after all of us in this room are gone, your word will stand uh, because it's alive and active. So we pray this morning that as we come to your word that we wouldn't be just dealing with ink on a page, uh, but we would be dealing with you yourself, uh, that by your spirit you would apply these words to our heart and most of all, lift our eyes to your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder, uh, what sort of goals or ambitions do you have for your life? They could be financial goals. You might want to be in a certain position in 10 years or be ready to retire within the next five years or something like that. 
Uh, if you're at school, you could have academic goals. You know, you've you got to get a certain grade to get into a certain course at university. You could have travel goals, maybe not so much in the last couple of years, but it's not uncommon to hear of people say, before I die, I've you know, got a bucket list of different places I want to go in the world. You could even have uh, personal, or you might even say psychological ambitions. Again, it's not uncommon to hear people say things along the lines of, I just want to get to the place in life where I feel comfortable in my own skin. You know, you might have those sorts of ambitions. We've got all sorts of ambitions for our lives, many of them good and right ambitions. But the other day I had a book arrive in the mail from Reformers Bookshop. And when they send you books, you get little postcards and um, they even sent me gummy bears the other day, which was pretty cool. But uh, this postcard had quite an interesting quote on it. You probably can't see it. Maybe I should have got a picture for the the, uh, the slideshow. But this post um, bookmark, rather, says, the first priority of my life, the first priority of my life is to be holy. That was from John Wesley. The first priority of my life is to be holy. And so then as I was preparing uh, this sermon with the theme, be holy, I got to thinking, well, what have other people had to say about holiness? So I did some research. Uh, Listen to this from Robert Murray McShane. He was a pastor in the church in Scotland in the 19th century. Uh, And he said this about his work as a pastor. He said, my people's greatest need... My people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. It's quite a staggering thing to say. Or what about this from John Owen? He was another Puritan. He said, My heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life are that universal holiness might be promoted in my own heart and ways, my own life, and in the hearts and ways of others. What do you think about those ambitions? Do they sound extreme to you? Or or do you resonate with those ambitions? Do you share something of those ambitions? In the text that we just read, what we see is that we ought to. Holiness is something that God commands of us, something that God requires of us. What we see in our text today is a a call to be holy that runs right through the passage and is expressed in three different ways. So if you've got your Bibles open, then uh, I'll give you a bit of a roadmap. We're going to unpack three of the kind of commands or imperatives from our text today. Firstly, uh, we'll look at the call to not conform to our evil desires and to be holy that's found in verse 14 and 15. Secondly, we'll look at the call to live as foreigners in reverent fear in verse 17. And finally, we'll look at the call to love one another deeply, which is found in verse 22. We'll see how each of these commands or or calls could fit under the theme of holiness. And we'll also see that at each step of the way, we've been given reasons to follow these commands. But before we start... uh, there's a danger when it comes to talking about biblical commands, and that is that you can separate them from the gospel. Uh, And and you can get the wrong idea that the Christian life is all about just trying to follow these commands to make ourselves right with God and do it all in our own strength. Uh, But we mustn't do that. 
The only thing that makes us right with God is faith in Jesus that comes through grace. And actually, it's grace that keeps us going in the Christian life as well. We do things in the power of Jesus' strength uh, by the work of his Holy Spirit. But having said that, just because we're made right with God by grace, we ought not shy away from biblical commands either or pretend that there's no such thing as personal strenuous effort in the Christian life. God has saved us for a purpose and that purpose is that we might be holy, that we might be able to live for him and yes, obey his commandments, the kind of commands that we see in our text today. So let's dive in. In the first part of chapter 1, Peter's written to this group of exiled Christians and reminded them of the wonderful blessings, the spiritual inheritance that's come to them through Christ. They've got new birth, the salvation of their souls, and a spiritual inheritance that will never fade. And then in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, with, with that in mind, he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You see, there's a a hopeful future orientation about the Christian life. Our whole lives are looking forward to that day when our salvation's complete and we, we fully receive our spiritual inheritance, an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade. But importantly, that future orientation radically shapes our present way of life. We're not people who are kind of standing around with our our head in the clouds, looking forward to a certain day and uh, not being busy with the business of life. No, the future orientation radically shapes our present way of life. Look at what Peter says next in verse 14 and 15. He says, As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter's calling his readers to a life of all-pervasive holiness. And the fact that this is the, the first thing that he writes to them after he's reminded them of their spiritual blessings is telling, is it not? You've got a, people, a group of people who are exiled, they're suffering, they're facing persecution. And the first thing that Peter says to them is be holy. Peter's saying to them and saying to us that holiness matters. It ought to be one of the primary pursuits of every born-again child of God, one of life's great ambitions. What does holiness look like? It's described firstly here in negative terms, in, in terms of something we ought not to do. Peter says, Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And the way that that's translated in the NIV, the evil desires you had makes it sound like past tense, that those evil desires are now gone, but that's not the case. Uh, Other translations say that the passions of your former ignorance or something like that. Uh, There's evil desires. 
sinful impulses that exist inside each one of us. They existed in us before we were saved and although we've been set free from being enslaved by those evil desires, they're still there. We could write up a big long list of what they are, but perhaps one of the the best and the most comprehensive lists come from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 verse 21 that out of a person's heart, evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus says that if you go digging in the human heart, what you'll find are evil desires. Peter calls us to recognise that, recognise that in our own hearts. And when we do recognise that, he calls us, do not conform to those evil desires. Don't let your life be shaped by them. Resist those desires. Fight against them. Don't give in to them. We can't be passive about this stuff. Peter told us already in verse 13 that we need to be alert and sober-minded. Evil desires are lurking in the shadows, crouching around every corner, bubbling up inside us. I wonder if you know something of that in your own heart and life. You can be travelling along just fine, cruising through the day, and then you you lay eyes on an attractive person and it sends you into a tailspin. All of a sudden, all these evil desires, lust, adultery, envy, just come out of nowhere. Or you can be in a great mood for the day and it only takes one little comment to have you seething with anger, burning with anger against your spouse or one of your kids or kids, one of your siblings. It only takes something little for them to set you off. Or you can have a colleague at work who you think is a bit of a dud, not very good at their job. And how easy it is for us to start thinking that we're better than that person in some way. Evil desires of arrogance and pride right there below the surface. It's different for everyone, of course, but we've all got them. And we've got a choice when it comes to our evil desires. We can conform to them, go along with them, indulge them, or we can resist them, fight them, nip them in the bud. Peter says that instead of conforming to our evil desires, we're called to be holy. And holiness in positive terms here means to be obedient children of God, verse 14, to obey his commands. Holiness is wrapped up in uh, following and obeying God, but it's more than that too. Holiness is more but not less than resisting evil desires and it's more but not less than obeying God's commands. Actually, the ultimate picture we get of holiness is in God himself. 
Peter says in verse 16, as it is written, be holy because I am holy. And in that phrase, we get a reason to be holy as well as a picture of what holiness looks like. The reason that we commanded to be holy, the reason why it matters so much is the fact that God, our Father, the one who calls us to himself, he is holy. Which is a scary thought in a way. Remember what Isaiah said when he encountered the holy God. He said, woe is me. God is holy. And we can't claim to have fellowship with him if we keep on willingly conforming to our evil desires. So there's an element of fear in that. But there's also a marvellous truth in that. Is it not a marvellous truth that God our Father is holy? That he's perfectly free from any kind of sin or evil desire, set apart from all those things. That in God there's no such thing as impurity or lewdness or improper envy or anger or deceit, or arrogance, or foolishness. Those things just simply aren't part of who God is. And in everything he does, in all his dealings with us, he's perfectly pure and good and right. Is it not wonderful that such a being, such a person, exists in this universe? We cry out for that. And that person is our Heavenly Father. And our Father wants us to share in His holiness. You know how kids, if they can see the good in their dad, they want to be like that? Oh, dad's strong or tough and I want to be like dad. Or dad's a fireman, I want to be like that. You might have a dad who's always willing to lend a hand and help people out and you can see that in him and you want to be like that. You might have a dad who's loving and gentle and you want to be like him. Or you might have a dad who's wise and you want to be wise. Well, God our Father is holy, free from any kind of sin or evil. He's full of all goodness and virtue. And we ought to want to be like that. And we see all the fullness of God's holiness on display in Jesus. In a really helpful book, The Whole in Our Holiness, Kevin DeYoung writes that we see all of the virtues of holiness perfectly aligned in Christ. Christ was always gentle, but never soft. He was bold, but never brash. He was pure, but never prudish. He was full of mercy, but not at the expense of justice. He was full of truth, but not at the expense of grace. In everything, he was obedient to his father, and he gave everything for his sheep. He obeyed his parents, kept the law of God, and forgave his enemies. He never lusted, never coveted, never lied. In all that Jesus did during his whole life, he loved God with his whole being and loved his neighbour as himself. 
What a wonderful saviour. What a wonderful saviour. That's quite a picture, isn't it? It helps us to see what holiness looks like in action. We see God's holiness displayed in Jesus and it's as our affections are moved towards him. It's as we find our identity wrapped up in Jesus that we can begin to grow in holiness too. That's the calling that God's put on our lives, to be holy in all that we do. All that we do, like Jesus, every day, every moment, every thought, every word, every action, every choice, at work, at home, at school, on holidays, in public, in private, God calls us to be holy, to make holiness our great ambition in life, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Be holy, Peter says, because God is holy. The second thing we're called to do is to live as foreigners in reverent fear. Verse 17 of chapter 1 says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Part of knowing God as a father is to live in reverent fear because we know that he's a God who judges each person's work impartially. How is that related to holiness? Well, you might say that one of the great motivators, certainly not the only motivator, but one of the great motivators, one of the things that drives us to live holy lives is a proper and reverent fear of God. We've got to get this right. On the one hand, it's wrong to say that we ought to be afraid or terrified of God's final judgment. We never need to fear that God our Father will stop loving us or condemn us or leave us or forsake us. We can always run back to Him. His arms are always open. But on the other hand, it would be wrong to say that we can be casual or irreverent when it comes to God. Just because we know that we're secure in Him, we can't be irreverent when it comes to the way we live our lives before God. Peter says that we call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially. There's a coming day of judgment. And even though we'll be safe and saved and clothed in Jesus' righteousness on that day, we'll still need to give an account to God for the things that we've done in this life. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 tells us, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That thought is cause for reverent fear, is it not? But Peter goes on to give another powerful reason why we should live out our time as foreigners in reverent fear. He says, for, or you might say because, in in verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What Peter's saying is that God has, in his grace, redeemed us out of an empty and sinful and unholy way of life at great cost. 
the cost of our redemption was the precious blood of Christ. And so because it's cost him so much, God is displeased if we disregard that redemption and go on living the same empty, unholy way of life. If you've been pulled out of a dirty swamp, it doesn't make much sense to dive back in. In fact, the reason why God has redeemed us is so that we can live holy lives. J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, wrote that we must be holy for this is the grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete saviour. He doesn't merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin, but he breaks its power too. God has redeemed us so that we could be set apart and enabled to live holy lives. And living those kind of lives is going to set us apart from the world around us. We'll be foreigners. We'll be strangers in a strange land. We live in a country and a culture that, by and large, has no fear of God. In the minds of most people around us, God is either non-existent or irrelevant, or if he does exist, then he's probably not that interested in the moral standards by which I live my life. We live in a culture where the fear of God is all but forgotten and the signs are everywhere. Take a cross-section of any popular TV shows or movies or popular songs. Talk to any tradie about the kind of conversations you hear on the job site. The same could go for hospitality workers. I was talking to a tradie the other day who's been in his work for, oh, it must be 20 or 30 years, and he said that he's actually noticed that the young guys coming through, their talk is dirtier, and he's a pretty rough guy himself, but he says it gets to him at times. Talk to any teacher about the sort of things that they're dealing with in the lives of their students. Talk to any teenage girl about the sorts of things that teenage boys are texting them. All of it is symptomatic of a culture in which there is no fear of God. And as people who live in reverent fear, we're going to find ourselves foreigners, profoundly different from the people around us. Not because we're in any way inherently better than them, of course not. But simply because we've been redeemed and rescued by the blood of Jesus. Redeemed out of the kind of way of life that I would still be running headlong into if it weren't for the intervention of God. Actually, it's worth asking the question as you take in the world around you, the different TV shows and movies and songs that you hear on the radio and stuff, conversations at work, do you find it hard to really enjoy or engage in any of those things because of the obvious unholiness or the lack of the fear of God? Do you feel like a bit of a foreigner? Another question worth asking is, is, could you be identified as a foreigner? In your workplace, 
at school with friends? Is there something noticeably different about you? Peter tells us, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Finally, he calls on us to love one another deeply from the heart. Look at verse 22. It says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. There's a little bit to unpack in this verse and it helps us if we consider that up until this point, Peter's been talking about holiness or you might say purity. And now we get this phrase in verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. The question is, what does that mean? And there's a couple of different interpretations. It could be uh, the phrase obeying the truth could be interpreted as meaning uh, believing the gospel, obeying the truth of the gospel. In other words, the moment that we entrust our lives to Jesus, put our faith in him, at that moment we've obeyed the truth and we've become pure, we've been made holy. But that phrase, obeying the truth, could also be referring to the, the kind of ongoing obedience of the Christian life. As we go on obeying God's commands, we are purifying ourselves. Either way, I don't want to pretend it's not an important distinction. I probably lean towards the first interpretation of that. You could, might ask Carl next week. Um, uh, but either way, given that the context is talking about holiness... When Peter writes, now that you've purified yourselves, in other words, become holy by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for one another, what he's doing is he's drawing attention to one of the marks of holiness in our life. And that is that we have sincere love for one another. How do you know when, how you're going when it's coming to holiness? Do you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you celebrate their wins? Or do you find yourself getting envious? Are you able to put aside malice and impatience and frustration when someone who really presses your buttons won't leave you alone? You know, it's easy to feel holy when we're singing songs, but the rubber hits the road when someone's pushing our buttons. How do we know how we're going when it comes to holiness? One of the questions to ask is, do we have sincere love for one another? And if that's a mark of holiness, then Peter calls us to go on loving each other more and more. Love one another deeply from the heart, he says. And as you do that, you'll be growing even more in holiness. He then gives us a reason for this kind of love. He says in verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. What Peter's saying is that by virtue of our shared new birth, we've been brought into spiritual relationship with each other and that relationship is going to go on forever. And that's because our new birth has come by the imperishable, living and enduring word of God. Because the word of God that caused our shared new birth is eternal, our fellowship with each other is eternal as well. 10,000 years from now, 
in the same way that we're gathered together in this room, we'll still be gathered around God's holy throne. We're going to know and love each other forever. And so we may as well start now. Kind of like when you set out for a road trip with the kids and they start getting a bit tetchy in the back seat and you say, kids, we've got 18 hours of driving ahead of us. You better start getting along now. It's not a perfect illustration, but there's a bit of that going on. A mark of holiness in our individual lives and in our life together as community is our sincere love for each other, which includes the absence of the things that we see in chapter 2, verse 1. A holy community of people will be increasingly free of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And just as putting those things aside is necessary for growth in holiness, so is the pure spiritual milk that we see in chapter 2, verse 2. We're told to crave that pure spiritual milk now that we've tasted that the Lord is good. If you want to grow up in your salvation, if you want to grow in that kind of sincere love for each other, if you want to grow in holiness, then be hungry for God's word, pure spiritual milk, in the same way that newborn babies are hungry for milk. And it would make sense for us to be hungry for God's word if we've tasted that he is good. If we've tasted something of God's goodness to us, his grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, his holiness even, his goodness to us in all his dealings with us, we discover those things in his word. If we've tasted that the Lord is good, then the place to taste more of his goodness is in his word, applied to our hearts by his spirit. Kind of like if you've, if you've eaten at a nice restaurant, you want to go back there again. There's an interesting point that comes out of this and that is that you might say that our desire for holiness goes hand in hand with our hunger for God's word. If indeed we are people that have holiness as one of our chief ambitions in life, then we'll be hungry for God's word to help us grow in that. Because we know, if we're honest, that without God's word we're hopelessly ill-equipped. We're beset by evil desires and temptations. So easily discouraged by feeling like foreigners. We struggle to love one another. Envy and gossip are never far from the surface. And in the midst of all that, God shines his word like a light and says, help is here. Help is here. Crave pure spiritual milk, be hungry for my word. You might have heard the phrase, the Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I'm not sure he said that. The person whose life is marked by a kind of settled godliness and holiness, you probably know those sorts of people. The person who just seems to ooze love for God and love for other people is usually the person whose daily ritual is marked by drawing near to God in his word. I don't know about you, but I look at that kind of person and say, 
That's how I want to be. I want to be like that. They're on to something. I want what they're having. What are they having? The Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And so as we finish up today, let's land with this call to be people who are hungry for God's word. Be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Live as foreigners in reverent fear. Why? Because God's redeemed you out of your old way of life. Love one another deeply from the heart. Why? Because you're going to be together for eternity. How do we possibly begin to get there? Crave the word of God. Taste his goodness as you read his word and find in it the strength of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be holy. We can be holy. The path to get there is perhaps more mundane than we might think. But it's more worthy of pursuing than anything else in this life. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, which calls us to holiness. Lord, thank you for your holiness. That you're perfectly free from sin or evil. You're set apart, good and right in all your dealings with us. Thank you that we see something of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of your holiness dwelling in him. Thank you that he's a wonderful saviour who's rescued and redeemed us out of our unholy way of life. Lord, help us, we pray, by your spirit. And through your word, guiding us and showing us the way to be able to live holy lives. We confess that we fall far short of the calling that you've put on our lives. But grant that we might not be discouraged or grow weak. But strengthen us, we pray, so that we might live as foreigners in reverent fear of you holding out hope and light to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.